Welcome to the PEDS-NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm Becky Carson, Assistant Professor at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and today is a very special episode of the PEDS-NP because it is the first time that I have had a special guest. And full disclosure, the special guest is my husband. John Lyles is a pediatric gastroenterologist at Duke University Health System, and he is the very first number one fan of the Peds NP and someone that I credit with the fact that we're sitting here right now talking. So thank you very much for agreeing to be here. And I'm really excited to talk with everybody about the same things that we sit around the dinner table at night talking about as a family. Thanks for having me. So we've talked a lot about neonatal hyperbilirubinemia in primary care pediatrics, which is the result of indirect or unconjugated bilirubin. But in this episode, we're focusing on acute care. So I'd like to talk about direct hyperbilirubinemia. Can you tell us some more about this conjugated bilirubin and intrinsic liver dysfunction? Yeah, of course. So as Becky says a lot in her podcast, I would take it back to the uh, pathophysiology. So where does bilirubin come from in the first place? It comes from the degradation of hemoglobin. So hemoglobin becomes biliverdin, which becomes unconjugated bilirubin, which then binds to albumin and goes into the liver, dissociates from albumin, binds to some other stuff that we don't need to talk about, and gets transformed into conjugated bilirubin, which is then funneled into bile uh, via the hepatocyte into the bile ducts within the liver and then into the gallbladder. So literally anything along that pathway can cause hyperbilirubinemia. And for our discussion today, for conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, it is when the fraction of the whole or fraction of the total bilirubin is high in direct or conjugated bilirubin. And so there are certain presentations that we see of this in the neonate where there are some red flags that we need to think about. What are those? There are several. If you're seeing a neonate with hyperbilirubinemia that is less than 24 hours old, that has persisted for greater than 14 days, that is new onset regardless or has very high levels, that should be concerning. You should also take into account the wellness or illness level of the patient. So if they look well and they're breastfeeding and they're two week old, then they may be okay and and fine to observe clinically. But if they're ill appearing, then you need to become more concerned. What are some of the etiologies that we're going to see in the neonatal period that are causing hyperbilirubinemia? I mean, I think that in primary care, we're often thinking about breastfeeding jaundice, which is, in my mind, actually not enough breastfeeding jaundice. They're getting a little bit dehydrated. Maybe mom's milk hasn't come in or something like that. Um, but it's in that that classic time frame, not the before 24 hours, not after two weeks. So what are the etiologies that are going to cause this more pathologic jaundice that you're talking about? Yeah, there's a good way to think about that. You know, think 
back to the pathophysiology where you can have biliary derived or hepatocyte derived hyperbilirubinemia. And I think for a person in primary care or acute care pediatrics, the biggest thing to look out for in a patient with hyperbilirubinemia is sepsis or other infections like herpes simplex virus or CMV. These are very critical to pick up on in the office, refer appropriately because time is of the essence to really identify the etiology and start treatment. And that's a really good point because sepsis can happen outside of that neonatal period. Certainly it's something that we think about. Um, And I know that we've talked a lot about a patient that you had that had hyperbilirubinemia as a, I think, one-day-old But we've also shared a common patient who had Epstein-Barr virus. Are there pathogens that are more likely to cause hyperbilirubinemia that we need to think about in a workup? Yes, in neonates particularly, outside of bacterial infections like sepsis or UTIs, like we've said before, HSV, CMV, adenovirus, torch infections in general, so of which HSV and CMV are a couple, but toxoplasmosis, syphilis, rubella um, can all cause hyperbilirubinemia. So I think we're all pretty comfortable with an infectious workup with a neonate who is concerning for infection. CBC, blood culture, inflammatory markers, LP, uh, and all the studies that go with CSF. What do we need to order in order to examine for liver dysfunction once we have a child who has jaundice? Great question. I think the key next steps outside of infection are, one, you probably already have it, but to make sure you have a fractionated bilirubin so that you know that you're dealing with direct hyperbilirubinemia. So that's a total and direct bilirubin. Total and direct. That will generally come with a hepatic function panel. However, you probably will get a CMP, which doesn't always have a direct component. Or another very important component of our workup is a GGT, which will measure for bile duct injury along with ALKFOS. You also want to assess for hepatocyte injury. So AST and ALT are enzymes that reside within hepatocytes, and if they're high, that means you have those cells being burst. Functioning of the liver comes down to essentially two things. The liver makes albumin, so you'll want to assess albumin, and clotting factors. So you want to assess the INR of your patient. Also knowing that once we have this direct hyperbilirubinemia, that you guys are here to provide consultation in case we can't remember this list. Absolutely. Yes, this is, you know, always something we are happy to hear about and to help guide with even a pediatric gastroenterologist as lowly as myself below the hepatologist is more than happy to guide you through these first initial steps. So let's say that the infectious workup is negative in a patient who has hyperbilirubinemia, either in the neonatal period or outside of it. What are some other etiologies of hyperbilirubinemia or jaundice that we are going to have on our differential? think that in terms of going back to the pathophysiology, thinking about where the hyperbilirubinemia is stemming from will help guide some of that workup. I think a lot of people are familiar with the etiology biliary atresia. It is by far and away the most common reason 
for liver transplant in pediatrics. So that is something that should be on your differential. It is essentially when the biliary tree, extrahepatic biliary tree, including the gallbladder, are undergoing an inflammatory change, an inflammatory process where they're essentially being obliterated. And it creates an obstructive pathology because the bilirubin, the bile, from the liver can no longer get out of the liver. And so that patient will present in the first month of life with direct hyperbilirubinemia, with jaundice, scleroelectris, perhaps clay-colored stools, puritis. And so those things should be on your differential. And the way that you go about assessing for hyperbilirubinemia that's due to biliary atresia, in addition to the labs we've already talked about, is primarily an abdominal ultrasound, which will assess if that gallbladder is present or not. Other things to think about, especially in the neonatal period, are congenital hypothyroidism, tyrosinemia, galactosemia. You want to think about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, urea cycle disorders, fatty acid oxidation disorders. So those are a lot of inborn errors in metabolism that sometimes can get picked up on a newborn screen, but each listener is going to need to think about what state they live in because the newborn screen is different in every single state. And you may or may not be getting the benefit of having the diagnosis handed to you. You might just have a patient who's presenting with liver dysfunction. Right. And you may not have the benefit of that newborn screen being back yet. So knowing what to look for and to start that work up yourself is an A-plus all-star move. As we've already said, you have pediatric hepatologists or gastroenterologists available that can help remind about what those might look like in the time that you're presented with that patient. That's super helpful. Let's talk about some of the more iatrogenic forms of liver dysfunction Something that we cause in the hospital, I'm talking specifically about our friends who are getting TPN and lipids for extended periods of time and develop liver disease from this. That is a very common thing to see, especially in the NICU, where these babies are more often than not born prematurely. They may or may not be able to tolerate enteral nutrition or have had other consequences like necrotizing intercolitis or an intestinal perforation. They're too sick to be fed by the gut. You really can't feed them by the gut, exactly. Or they're just not tolerating it. And so you still need to grow the baby. And TPN is an excellent tool. It's wonderful. But we do know that it's not a natural source of nutrition. We also know that it's primarily due to the intralipids, the soy-based intralipids, and have developed measures to kind of counterbalance the direct toxic effect on the liver. It's not uncommon for pediatric gastroenterologists or hepatologists to be consulted on patients like that. And we go through the same steps that we've already talked about. We assess the basic labs, the hepatic function panel with GGT, abdominal ultrasound, some more of those specialized labs, looking for all the things that we've already talked about, like hypothyroidism, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And then at the end of the day, we need to change their TPN around. And it, Or during the day, we have a high suspicion that this is due to a prolonged use of TPN. We need to you know, change the lipids to SMOF or OmegaVan. 
or we need to reduce them to one mg per kilogram, or space them out to maybe just Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Cycling them in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. Reducing their impact overall, but not setting up the baby for essential fatty acid deficiency. Or growth failure. Or growth failure. And then if the gut works, use it. Of course. And you're still working with the team to help them navigate enteral feeding difficulties or intolerance. Well, that is all super helpful. From our dinner conversations around our kitchen table, I know that you also have an interest in inflammatory bowel disease. And in fact, you and I have shared a common patient in the past. Um, It was a teenage male that I diagnosed with a perirectal abscess. And he had been suffering from diarrhea and weight loss. And you ended up um, being consulted and uh, were able to complete a colonoscopy. And he was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And so tell us a little bit more about these presenting symptoms that we might see in a patient with inflammatory bowel disease that we should be really suspicious of. I'm going to use a Becky-ism again. Bring back to the pathophysiology. What is inflammatory bowel disease? What are the two biggest camps of inflammatory bowel disease? It's Crohn's disease, which can affect anything in the GI tract from your mouth to your anus, and ulcerative colitis, which is primarily in your colon. So thinking about that, you can have presenting signs and symptoms ranging from weight loss, growth failure, short stature, You can have abdominal pain. Obviously, that's a bit of a black box if it's present alone. But nausea and vomiting can be present. Diarrhea, obviously, is a a big presenter for us, a big red flag for us, especially if it's bloody diarrhea, especially if someone is waking up overnight to poop. That is very unusual and a red flag. Or if it's very urgent. I'm really glad that I heard you talk about both red flags and a black box because abdominal pain can be really confusing for us. So since our NASPGAN guidelines support clinical diagnoses of functional disorders, when do you decide to get labs and what might you get when inflammatory bowel disease is on the differential? I totally agree that when someone walks into the office and they are giving me point blank, like reading from a textbook, this is irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, I have pain right before, during, when I'm pooping, I have loose poop, it gets better right afterwards, and it doesn't have blood in it, or wake them up overnight, and you're looking at their growth chart, and they're exceeding expectations in some scenarios, then yes, you do not have to get labs. If they stray from that script and there is some level of red flag or differential is broader than just like, yes, I do think this is irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, then thinking about getting a CBC to assess for anemia, thrombocytosis, getting a complete metabolic panel or just a hepatic function panel to assess for albumin because oftentimes, or sometimes at least, you have hypoalbuminemia because you're losing it in your stool. Getting a CRP and SED rate to check for acute and chronic inflammation, 
And then also getting a fecal cow protector is very helpful in assessing for distal, small bowel, and colonic inflammation. Those are super helpful to know. I think I tend to start with ruling out infection. Should I be getting all of those at the same time that I'm getting maybe a stool PCR? Well, no. Or I, it's time to refer to you once the infection workup is negative. Right. I think I'm biased because when I end up seeing these patients, it's not I've had this going on for a week or two weeks. It's I've been having this going on for several months or longer. And that puts a whole different frame on what you're thinking of. And at the end of the day, some of these patients might have a normal workup and what they really need is endoscopy. Right. So Becky brings up a great point that even if you have a classic inflammatory bowel disease patient sitting in front of you, you're very suspicious. They've had bloody diarrhea for weeks, if not months. They're losing weight, even if they're not quite aware of it themselves. Things are getting worse. Maybe they even have a family history of inflammatory bowel disease in a parent or a sibling or a grandparent. You're like, man, this is all fitting inflammatory bowel disease. And you get their initial blood levels back, or blood labs back, I should say, and everything is normal. That does not exclude inflammatory bowel disease because about 20% of patients in pediatrics will have normal labs. That doesn't necessarily apply to the fecal calprotectin lactoferrin, but it is applied to your CBC hepatic function panel, CRP, and sedrate. So they might have normal blood work, um, but most of the time they'll have an elevated fecal lactoferrin, right? Correct. How do you work with families to help them decide how to initially manage their disease and then get them to maintenance and through any exacerbation. Initial management can be pretty broad from a topical steroid in the form of Intercort or budesonide or hydrocortisone enemas to we're starting infliximab right now in the hospital. So it does take some knowledge of how ill a patient is what their endoscopy and colonoscopy looked like to really understand where you should start. And I think talking with patients about like, this is a new diagnosis. This is going to be a chronic illness that you have for the rest of your life because we don't have a cure for inflammatory bowel disease at this point. It's something that I like to address early on. I like to reassure families that most of the time, we have very good medicines that will place their son or daughter in remission, and then they can have very successful, happy, healthy lives without the need to think about this illness all the time. So induction therapy can be with a nutritional therapy, like a formula, or it can be with medication. Which do you choose? Oftentimes, if someone has more colitis-type symptoms, so like diarrhea, formula wouldn't be a great option for them. 
though in other scenarios, exclusive internal nutrition where you have to take either by mouth or via an NG tube upwards of 80% of your calories via a formula is an option. I have presented it to patients. I haven't gotten a whole lot of eager participants in it, but it's because it's hard to do. However, that's not to say that it's not worthwhile, especially if you want to avoid prednisone at all costs. And then what are some of the best evidence-based practice therapies that you use for either keeping a patient on maintenance or managing an exacerbation? So maintenance has a whole broad spectrum too. It can range from oral medications like mesalamine um, and up to 30% of ulcerative colitis patients will actually be maintained on successfully. Others like immune modulators that can include methotrexate and azathioprine, I think our community is overall moving away from azathioprine because of the risk of hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma and also skin cancers. But methotrexate is still viable option. And then you go into biologics. Tell us some of the brand names that we're used to hearing in those commercials on TV. <laughs> yeah, so if you watch sports or daytime television, I'm sure you've seen Humira advertised. That is an injectable anti-TNF alpha, also called Adalimumab. Um, we use a lot of infliximab, also called Remicade. You probably also have heard of Intivio which is vetalizumab, or Stellara, which is ustekimumab. Thank you so much, Dr. Lyles. This has been extremely informative, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. It's really valuable to think through hyperbilirubinemia and inflammatory bowel disease with you. Thanks for having me, Dr. Carson. That was Dr. John Lyles, pediatric gastroenterologist with Duke University Health System. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to the Peds NP, where we focus on the practical application of evidence-based practice. There's no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of the Peds NP. Find me on Instagram at the Peds NP podcast, DM me or send questions and comments to thepedsnp at gmail.com. You can see show notes and references at www.thepedsnp.com. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. You're learning for the kids. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.